They come from the bowels of hell. The Dana Gould Hour. Jungle worms and swamp rats run around your feet. I fought a dog that killed the calf that ate the canary. What is truth? And once again, welcome back. Well, summer's almost gone. The kids are getting ready to go back to school and fall is in the offing. And here in the Mulholland Drive view shelf, that means only one thing. We only have four more months of blistering heat. But I'm still in an autumnal frame of mind. I dropped off my oldest daughter at college for her first semester. It's odd. The last three years of high school, three of the four, are dedicated to do your PSATs, do your SATs, do your IRBs, get a good grade, you gotta go to a good college, college tours, applications, gotta do your college essays, you gotta go look at colleges, gotta get into a good college, 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 college. And after all that hard work, damned if they don't get into a great college, and then you're just about to drop them off and you think, wait a minute, where the hell do you think you're going? You're not going anywhere. This means your childhood is over. Why am I alive? Good question. Anyway, I did successfully drop her off at college, went back to the hotel, sat on the bed and cried into a pillow while watching The Hunt for Red October, like anybody else. Just sitting there sobbing, I didn't know Tim Curry was in this. Anyway, fortunately, I'm still eyeball deep in kids, thank God. But that was a gut punch I was not anticipating. Let me tell you, there you go, little window into my private life. Uh, anyway, we have a terrific show for you this month. Cult movie director Jeff Lieberman is here. Jeff has such classics as Squirm, Blue Sunshine, Just Before Dawn, Remote Control under his belt. He's worked with Rod Serling. He almost did a Broadway show with John Lennon. He's got stories for days, and they are all in his new book, Day of the Living Knee. And he is here to talk about that. Jeff Lieberman. Me? Couple things. I will be joining our good friend Bobcat Goldthwaite for the Limestone Comedy Festival in Bloomington, Indiana on September 2nd and 3rd, as well as at the Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas, September 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It is there, in good old Austin, Texas, that Bob and I are premiering our new film, Joyride. It is a tour documentary of our Show with Two Heads tour that we did in the waning days of pre-pandemic America, as well as the story of our somewhat rocky relationship over the years, and much, much more. It's, uh, it is really funny, it is really interesting, and I almost hate to say it, it's really a moving piece of work. All thanks to Bob, who directed it. I'm just in the thing. Um, but when the pandemic hit and we found ourselves with a lot more time, Bob took what was going to be just a tour documentary and made something very unique. I hate to say it, but uh, it's really great. It's worth seeing. It premieres in late October, and the world premiere will be at the Moon Tower Festival in Austin, Texas on September 25th. Go to Austin Theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org for details. Austin A-U-S-T-I-N, theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E, the old world spelling, dot org. Get your details. And uh, we should get something up on danagool.com. Let me do that, too. Thinking out loud right here during the intro. 
October will be a very busy month, as usual, uh, for us here at the show. Uh, in addition to producing the mega Halloween episode of the Dana Gould Hour podcast, and we still have September's to do, we will also be filming season two of Hanging with Dr. Z. Thanks to the excellent response to our Kickstarter, we are fully funded and moving full speed ahead with a new season of Hanging with Dr. Z with an insane roster of guests. Hanging with Dr. Z, the talk show that openly challenges evolution instead of making the viewer question it by how everyone on the show behaves. Season two, Hanging with Dr. Z. All that stuff and so much more coming your way. How do we make all this happen, you ask? You. This podcast, Hanging with Dr. Z, they're all possible because of you and your generosity. And to everyone who contributed to the Kickstarter for the show or is a part of our Patreon here at the podcast, I want to take this opportunity to thank you. Here at the podcast, we only have one Patreon level, five bucks a month, and you get some extra stuff. You get extra video every month. You get extra links to what we're talking about. You get some audio stuff. If you're not a member, please consider joining. Just go to danagould.com for details. It is the Patreon that makes the show possible, and we are forever in your debt. Go to danagould.com for details. And now, it's on. To our filthy business. My guest today is a legendary figure in uh, American cult cinema. We like to say cinema in general, but really in in uh, American cult cinema, he's a he's a, a very legendary figure. I had the uh, good fortune of meeting him. I think it was two years ago, back in the before times. Yeah, we met well, at, at, uh, yeah, we met at a film festival in in upstate New York. Uh, he is the writer and director of Squirm. Blue Sunshine, Just Before Dawn, and one of my uh, my favorite, maybe the, my favorite movie that he is Remote Control from 1988. He also made uh, the the excellent uh, stand-up comedy documentary, but seriously, uh, and uh, many other things. Please welcome your friend and mine, Jeff Lieberman. Thank you. Thank you. You can all sit. Stop applauding. <laughs> now, Jeff, uh, Jeff has a, a new book out that is a, uh, I guess it would be a memoir. A Romana clay, I'd like to say, uh, called Day of the Living Me. It's a really, uh, you can get it on Amazon, Day of the Living Me. It's a really great read. It's a really fun read. And it's it's one of those, you have one of those stories that you're, uh, came of age in New York in the sort of the independent movie world and the very very late 60s early 70s all the way right, back. Exactly, you right. met everybody 
Right. Twice. I actually walked up yeah. and down the street and said, hello, how are you? Hello, how are <laughs> but, you? But it really is true. You, 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 you've, met, you've, you've met everybody. And so to that end, it's, it's hard to know where to start. But I want to go with, uh, with one of my favorite people who I've talked about a lot on this podcast. And then from there, we'll move backwards and forwards. Um, you hung out with Rod Serling. Yes. Tell I us like a little bit about that. Rod was hanging out with me, but sure. it sounds like such bullshit that I, I like to think it, but I would never <laughs> say, oh, I just did say it. But I interviewed yeah. his daughter a couple of months ago. And and, yeah. and from the yeah, and from the book, uh, and you get the same you get the same sense of him that uh I got from Ann and from the book. He he was a really good dude. He was like a solid dude, not a not for a guy with that many accomplishments he was not full of himself at all he was he was um could you be negative full of yourself could you yeah he self uh, he was uh yeah what's the, he was uh, uh self-deprecating yeah yeah i mean any guy that has that kind of reputation and that uh uh gravitas mm -hmm. you call it i would uh, when i got to a point where he was cool with me I open the door. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you thrive on. I open the door, I say, after you. He goes, no, after you. And I said, I insist. And he goes, why, certainly. And he goes in, and then I run in front of him. <laughs> that's three yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so that's Rod certainly. That was amazing. There's no way you would know that watching that, you know, Rod Serling on TV. Yeah. So we should so the set set the stage. You start you started out your first job in in, in film was re-editing Swedish porn movies, essentially. Not was, maybe not porn. Yeah, well saucy. I was a, it was called it was called softcore. Yeah. Um uh coined by uh, a late friend of mine, Paul Krasner. Oh, I knew Paul. He, yeah, he, co Paul he coined that a, phrase. He was my friend for a gazillion years. But he, of the realist. Because, because first came porn. Yes. And then they said, okay, we're going to have porn. Forget it. It was like your dad's sock drawer, eight millimeter porn art. Right. Stag but, films. Yeah, stag films. So you can have movies in the movie theaters at 35 millimeter, even if it's 42nd Street. You can't show that German Shepherds and all that. So you have to. <laughs> So, so what, the is, thing what is, is the not to go down a rabbit hole, but what is the appeal of that? Never mind. <laughs> obviously not a dog person. Anyway, uh, so, uh, so Paul Krasner came up with the term softcore because that's what they were doing. Is like eh, I see a little of this, a little bit of all the things you can't see, and that's how they got on Forty Second Street. Yeah, and and, and so I was and it was like the like the Emmanuel films and things right. like that. Yeah, and there would be like if it made money, Emmanuel goes to college. Emmanuel yeah, <laughs> you know, goes to yeah, you know, the, the free clinic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. um, and and so your job, you were you uh, was this this was before you worked at, at Janus Films, right? Uh, you were you're re edit you're you're re editing these. I wasn't doing the re-editing. I didn't know how You're to assisting. I knew how yeah. to make a splice. Uh-huh. Which is today, it's a totally useless skill. Yes, it is. A it's like splice and a 35 millimeter print that people don't know about. But I I would make the splice and this woman was cutting it. Woman right. was cutting the, the and the, yeah, this uh this uh sort of bossy woman who cuts softcore porn for like <laughs> right. 
Exactly. Uh, but you ended up at Janus Films, which is a very high-end Ingmar Bergman. You know, they get a lot of foreign films. And uh, for people that watch a lot of Criterion issues, it's the their icon is like the the Greek coin or whatever it is. It's a very arty farty the Janus heads film. facing yeah ways. And, and you had an idea where uh, they were cut because they needed to repurpose their content it's just like today we have all this stuff what do we do with it and you came up with this idea of like well we'll take all of these classic films and re-edit them into like film school like this is the story of editing this is the story of well that was uh, the art of film but but yeah in all fairness the idea of repurposing stuff was Saul Terrell who was the president of Janus and that's why he hired me he mm-hmm. called it mining gold. We already own this stuff, and we already have this stuff in distribution. But how do we wring out more money out of this without licensing other? Yeah, things? that's what that's uh, well. That was Joe Dante's first first job for Roger Corman was making a movie out of trailers. Oh, really? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, oh, I got to talk to Joe about that. Yeah, yeah, but that's basically what I did, and um, it was once I got the hang of it and what they wanted. Um, I made a a little children's film called The Unicorn out of a multi-million dollar uh, movie called Kid for Two Farthings, which is a rank organization. It was, uh, mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, Carol Rice direct. It was an awful movie, but within the movie, there was this cool little story with a little boy and, he, and a, a goat that he thought was a unicorn because he had a horn in the middle of his head. Right, and I said, "This is like a sentimental little story." If I get rid of Di- Diana Doors and a wrestler, <laughs> and all these, it was it, Primo Canera. Was I mean, it was Jesus. the worst. But if you took them out, there's this tender little story within it, and I cut it, and I got um, Barry Gray. Remember, Barry Gray was a yep. radio guy, and he had that he had gravitas, yep. and I had him narrate it for the bridges because once you cut up a movie. It's not going to make sense. The transitions weren't shot that way. So you have Barry Gray right. over the transitions. And we sold it to CBS uh, Network uh, afternoon, Saturday afternoon um, on network that paid from my salary for like a year and a half. Wow. That's, yeah. They just people just That's mining gold. Yeah. yeah, and so when you did the art of film, you your idea was to get Rod Serling because again you needed it narrated by somebody with a lot of gravitas, right? And you he, you didn't know him; it was just a cold call, right? Uh, well, it was a lukewarm call. Yeah, you knew somebody uh, that was a student. I knew somebody who was a student at Ithaca College, my friend Fred Berner, and he made the uh, connection. But then it was up; it was all up to me to kind of win him over you know right. to, and i when i did yeah it's an interesting story because you said when you first spoke to him on the phone and this is like 1971 two, one, two yeah. yeah um i just imagine a phone wearing bell bottoms with big sideburns um you're talking on the phone and he's very standoffish and it takes a long time until he realizes that you're a cool guy and that this yeah. isn't bullshit and then the minute he was assured of that he became a different person the- <laughs> I told his daughter this, but I don't know if she liked it. But this reality, the minute that he felt comfortable for me, this is what he did. Two Polacks walk into a bar. 
<laughs> and I went, I started laughing. This is Rod Sterling telling me a Pollock joke, right? It doesn't matter. He thought, because I'm laughing, that I love Pollock jokes, right? So from then on, it was the thing like they'd say, it's Rod Sterling on line three. I pick it up. He goes, uh, a Pollock and a rabbi and a zebra walk into, you know, and it's like, whoa. And I'm laughing. So he, you know, it was like, Rod, I'm laughing at the fact that the Rod Serling of the right. Twilight Zone is telling me, I'm not laughing at Polish. joke, yes. <laughs> to this day, he does well, he's dead, but he oh, doesn't yeah. know. But you know what? I was laughing, and that's all he wanted. You think about it. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that, well, it's also, yeah, he was just like, he wouldn't just, you know, humor is how it's, it's the second of the handshake. It's like you shake somebody's hand and then you share a joke and that's a, right. it's an equalizer. Yeah. So that was that's how people reach this show. The, the last story I wanted to touch on for that is one of the filmmakers that he had to narrate was Lenny Reifenstahl. Hitler's favorite director. Is it Reifenstahl? Renny, Probably Riefenstahl. I don't know. Riefenstahl, Riefenstahl, Riefenstahl. But uh, who made Triumph of the Will, the famous Nazi propaganda film. And he's looking at and the Olympia, text of Olympia, which was yeah. the uh, 1934 Three? Olympics in Berlin, where Jesse Owens, Owens. and uh, they used it. Uh, they She cut a film to make it a propaganda film that they were the Aryan race and they can win everything. Right. That's the reason why. They were so upset when Jesse Owens kicked their ass. I know. And what did they? And what did Serling say when he saw the, when he saw the text? He said, "He goes, Lenny Riefenstahl, that Nazi cunt." <laughs> and I went, "Cut!" I mean, that was like, okay, how are we going to do this? Because it's you know, I took him out in the hall and I said, "Listen, this is called the art of film." Okay. And I told him the story about how I wouldn't want to meet her. Uh, she was in the office. And I said, I'm going to duck out to lunch at 11 o'clock in the morning. Because if I met her, I really didn't know myself. You know, you kind of know yourself. I didn't know if I'd shake her hand and hang on to it and throw her out the window. Yeah. Like, so if you don't know, you don't want to put yourself in that position. Well, it's, yeah. she wasn't in jail. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but ostensibly, was, she could have gone to jail. But... She, um, the truth of the matter is she invented a montage that we use today in sports. If you see Olympity, it was, you know, say beyond uh, ahead of its time. It was beyond the valley of ahead of its time. Right, right, right. You know, right. It was like making a dive go on for like a minute, one dive, spinning around and all slow motion, all that. So it's yeah. called the art of film, not what's the political affiliation. Right, 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 right. You know, and and Rod looked at me, he goes, puts his cigarette out, and he goes, Jeff, fuck you. And that meant I'm right. I knew it was, you know, I knew yeah. that's what it meant. And I told the guys, we're going to get one take on this. Yeah. And, and, and he did it. And if you watch the art of film, you can hear that he wasn't digging that that segment, but yeah. we did get it. That's that's uh, that that's uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, just to to be in New York, you you at that point in time was so because because you talk about working in a 
in a room and, and Andy Warhol was there and you say in the book, like, yeah, but back then, like seeing Andy Warhol was like, eh, he's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. You know, a lot of these kind of iconic things happen that were invented later. You know, even Woodstock, you know, it was. It's yeah. supposed- you almost went to Woodstock. No, I was at Woodstock. Did you, did you, you did get there. Yeah, but, we got but there. But the, the story was. Yeah, the story was getting there. Yeah. yeah. But um, but so many things get, you know, myth. Uh, mo- most stories are myth, um, like the Bible. You know? Yeah. But that reality doesn't work for humans. They have to have these mythical things. Yeah. You know? And that, and I saw the way these things grew. Big Times Square, at the time they called it, um, you know, Forty Second Street. They didn't call it grind houses or anything there was nothing romantic it was smelled like piss there was yeah it was it was hollywood boulevard right now and if you went and if you went into a theater i mean you know it was disgusting right yeah but now you know and they did uh well joel joel schumacher told me that uh during the early 70s those theaters were basically a great place to sleep for a long time, for a little, it was, it was better than a, it was cheaper than a motel. And especially, if you were a junkie or something, you could just yeah. pay $2 and sleep in the theater for three hours or something. Especially when it's like 90 degrees out in the summer and they have yeah. that big frosty air sun. conditioning. I mean, it's cool inside. You know, yeah. You know, Sam Markoff used to say that from AIP, he said there's a certain amount of um, business that you're going to do from that sign. Doesn't matter what movie is playing in the theater. Wow. That they're going to go in because air conditioning was not, was pretty rare. You know, people didn't have air conditioning. In right, right. Because they had money. And even offices were, uh, was hit and miss. But come in, it's cool inside. Ah, it's 70 cents or whatever it costs. That's right. cool. Yeah, you can go in there for four. And if it's a double feature, you can go in there for, you know, yeah. four or five hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, and a lot of junkies just needing a place to sleep. They didn't want to spend for a hotel room. Right. Well, the seats didn't recline, but you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're, I'm imagine if you're a junkie, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. they do their own recline. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. Well, you know, um, and then there were people that are, you know, you, your your story about you're the second person I know that uh, that met John Lennon, uh, and he is somebody that I mean even. I think it was even Paul McCartney said, who is of himself larger than the life. Like, you know, John, John didn't become a deity until he was murdered. Right. You know, right. and people forget of the, of the, when the Beatles broke up in, in those initial early seventies, John had the least amount of commercial success of the four of them. George Harrison had the biggest hits. Well, no money wise, because um Lennon and McCartney got all the public. Oh no, they, no, I just introduced like solo albums like George oh. Harrison's solo work was much more was played a lot more on the radio than right than than Lennon's for the early the first half of the 70s. Um yeah, I'm, I'm, right. yeah, Imagine was a big album and Mind Games was a hit, but like sometime in New York City didn't do any business. And I was prone for the Yoko screaming things. Yeah. <laughs> Did you yes, I have. <laughs> 
That's it. You want to test out your stereo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an acquired, like so many things, it's an acquired taste. But yeah, uh, I'm waiting to acquire it, but I. But but, uh, but t- tell the story of how you, uh, of, of when you met him and the project that you guys were going to do, because it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, uh, at Janice Films, um, they owned uh, certain titles and one of them was King Kong. And my marching orders was to, make something other than just putting the movies out. They don't need me. They're going to book the movies to TV and, you know, colleges, whatever. And I thought um, King Kong would be a good idea uh, for a Broadway show. What do I know about Broadway shows? Zero. But um, there's a technical uh, glitch. (laughs) Yeah. As a matter of fact, at that point in time, probably the only musical i went to was uh, mary martin in uh, peter pan uh-huh. so i checked out on uh broadway shows but that's a qualification it's not sure nothing. and uh i well I as just, they say every president has never been the president until they're the president so you know you got to do it, it. You're, you're just underlying my point yeah. so i said uh <laughs> that that um you know, uh, Broadway show, I don't, the movie doesn't need to be remade because it was made. What are you going to do? You can do it in a color with special effects. It's the same movie. But take it to a Broadway show and you don't have to show them the, you can't possibly show a giant King Kong where you show his foot. And I had this idea with two agents and William Morris want to go to uh, Club Med. I didn't put this in the book, but <laughs> that was my, the thing I pitched to John Lennon. Anyway, I went to uh, a charity event that my father threw for Armored Erdogan, and I didn't even know who he was until I went there. And like everybody, you know, Armored Erdogan? He was he's, like, yeah, but tell for the Atlantic people. Atlantic Records. Yeah, he's a huge like, music he, industry. Yeah. He was he's, the, but he was the musician's guy. Like yeah, musicians, yeah. all the artists loved him because he was a hip. He was on their side. He wasn't yeah. like a student. He was like a student. It was, it was like, he was like if Martin Scorsese ran a movie studio. Like he exactly. was, yeah. Right, right. And who was your dad? Who was your dad? How My did dad your dad know Ar- Ahmet Erdogan? No, because Irving, Irv, Lieberman uh, would be, um, do these um, big, um, charity events and as a matter of fact when i was a kid he did the first uh national telethon with dean martin and barry gray that was how i connected barry gray and uh it was for uh the city of hope okay and he did uh the first rock and roll uh arena rock and roll show ever in the island garden arena in 1959 and uh, it was headlined by who was the number one vocalist in 1959? Quick, the number one vocalist, vocalist, male vocalist, boy. And well, Lloyd so, Price. No, I wouldn't. I wasn't going to say yeah, that. Lloyd Price and the female vocalist, number one, Doris Day, Connie Francis, Connie Francis. So he had, and he had Jimmy Clanton. He had Santo and Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Would, uh, what was it called? Moonwalk or sleepwalk or you know? So he he would run these things at the Island Garden Arena. Actually, Sid Bernstein, I saw him at the Friars Club, and he was like old and 
in the wheelchair and everything. I went over to him and I said, you know, Sid Bernstein presents was what the Beatles they brought you right, know, brought right, him right, right. Thing. And I didn't know him. And I said, um, do you remember uh, Irving Lieberman? He said, yeah, sure. How's he doing? I said, well, he died. It was my father. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. It was like way before this. But um, I said, you know, uh, do you remember the Island Garden thing? If my father didn't die of a heart attack at 55, you wouldn't be Sid Bernstein. Because <laughs> he would have brought, because he was the first one to do this. And he fucking agreed. He goes, I could see that. Oh, wow. He was the That's first right. because, well, no, even if he's jerking me off, the fact of the matter is uh, there's some truth to it. Because before that, all the rock and roll shows were at um, theaters. Alan right. Freed, the Paramount sure. He, My father put in an arena. Uh-huh. which was a new and that's what you know exploded the whole thing from there on so that's true that's true so i take credit because he's not around as well you should so you're at this thing and you meet uh john lennon and you pitch him uh, king kong the musical and he's into it yeah i pitched him uh it just occurred to me i yeah. said john do you know what king kong is all about and he says certainly it was the white man's fear of the black man boom I went, exactly. And then we went into this whole thing and uh, he, was, he was totally into it. And then, but what I love about the story is you thought, which, which anyone think like, as you're talking to him, like you're saying, I shouldn't be bothering this guy. I shouldn't be bothering. Well, he guy. had, you know, you know, Mona Lisa that yeah. kind of, he had that. Um, I used to have a, 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 a teacher in the school of visual arts and art teacher, Frank Viner, who's a pop artist pretty well known in New York. And he would have this kind of smirky grin while you're talking. And you're thinking, is he with me or is he or, goofing yeah. on me? And you couldn't put your finger on That's what John Lennon did. Right. But, but I you, figured, you know, what am I going to do? Hey, John, cut the shit. You know, I'm just yeah, going to yeah. go, go with it. And like, you know, what, what choice do I have? But he had this. But you, you pitched know, him and then you walked away not knowing, but then he, but then you get a call like two days later. He wants to. Right, meet I got a call like two in the morning that night that he's going to meet me at Danny's hideaway uh, with his lawyer. So he was totally into it. And uh, and then uh, the next day, uh, I find out from the boss at uh, Janice Films that well, we have the rights. We don't have the rights to do this. We have the rights to distribute it like all the things they're already doing. So yeah. where's the mining gold coming? So now that I mine gold, he's got to find out to get the rights from General Tires, who owned RKO at the time, uh, to do a Broadway show. And if we could, we would have gotten this thing financed one in one day. It was going to be John Lennon and Stevie Wonder right in the music. For, right. For I, want, musical, I said yeah. to him, this is my pitch. I say, John, uh, you know, you do all the white music in the movie, like the two William Morris guys, you know, the yeah. guys that bring over King Kong. And then Stevie does the jungle thing, and King, <laughs> and he's the sound of King Kong, you know. And he was doing that, you know, face thing, <laughs> but he was into it. He dug it. That's a bit, that is, that is, that is, yeah. But he is one of those guys that, yeah, he was just a guy. He was a very successful guy. And he was interesting. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, maybe uh, yeah, that might work. I don't know. They um, all are, you know, if you just, yeah. I think that celebrities is like a, I, I've seen so many celebrities and it's, and it's like, they'll meet you 
it's the way it's like the onus is on you how you come if you come off like oh oh, and they're gonna act like a celebrity you know right it's just an instinctive thing but i don't have that in my dna so it's like yeah he's john lennon that's what he does for a living i don't know his cat or i don't know anything about him so that vibe instantly i've always found throughout my life even a guy like you you're huge to me oh (laughs) no you think Okay. Well, I'm, I'm flattered because you know like, comedy. So I'm, I'm that that's flattering to me. I know. No, I know comedy and, yeah. and that's really a pretentious. I mean, how can I, I do, but I really do. Well, no, but seriously, it's a great piece of work and yeah, you, you, know, you uh, have to know what you're doing to do it. What you have to, you would have to know what you were doing to make that piece. Oh, but seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. you know, people come up to me and say, what's your favorite thing you ever did in the movie? And they figure I'm going to go squirm or this. And, that. and I say, but seriously. Yeah. Which is a good, for the, in other words, which people can still see it's you, we're jumping around, but it's a documentary basically about the, the, the origins and the evolution of, of satire in comedy in America. Well, it's comedy. actually what, what, what the pitch was, my pitch to Rob Reiner was like, uh, uh, the um, the news, and this is the news today is a whole other thing. But news right. in general is telling you one thing, and the stu- and the uh, politically and um, and socially oriented stand up comedians is saying something else that in twenty twenty hindsight we all accept as the truth, right. not what the news said, but what they said. But right. at the time. You know, it's the Vietnam War and all these things. I always got my news from those guys. Right. Me, sure. Right. And I said, fuck, because I was looking at it from their point of view. So I said, how do you prove that? Well, you start in 1960 because it's you have to have footage. Uh, and we went up to 1993 and showed the news and then what the comics reacted to that, right. that subject. And we did it over and over all the way to the present, which is 1993. Right. And uh, I was in um, two years ago, I was in Scotland in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, yeah. Edinburgh is how it's pronounced. Yeah, yeah it's a borough of Manhattan. Right. And uh, and, you know, I was the guest of honor and showing my movies. A guy comes up and he's a Scotsman. And he says, Mr. Lieberman, I came all the way from Houghton, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. wherever. And he says, I wanted to meet you. He says, because one of your movies has just changed my life. And I'm with the director of the festival. And she's thinking, well, here we go with like just before dawn. She, he says, but seriously, he saw it on uh, Channel 4, played uh-huh. uh, in England forever, uh, Channel 4. And uh, it blew me away. And I just like, wow. I mean, that's a compliment to me because I it was the closest you know, when you do a movie, you get all these ideas. If it's your movie and you've thought of it, it's going to lose in the translation. The whole assignment is don't let it go down the toilet completely. Like right. salvage something of your original idea. That's the closest thing to what I envision. But what's, it had what, all to do with having enough money, basically. True 
understand the shocking facts. As someone who lives and works in the catch-all euphemism that is Hollywood, I am frequently asked if I eat babies, or if I know anyone who eats babies, or if I know Tom Hanks, he surely eats babies. And here's the thing. We all laugh at this, but there are people who really believe this stuff. And I'm not just talking about people who live under bridges and argue with their shadows and wander the streets looking like the cover of the Aqualung album. Real people with cars and homes believe this. So you wonder, where did this start? Here's the thing. The insanity that is QAnon and all that stuff, it's hundreds of years old. It's just been updated and repurposed for modern-day use. The origin of the modern-day movie stars eat babies belief system can be traced to a very specific digital sewer called 4chan. 4chan is what is known as an image board, which is basically a message board with images. And it was started in 2003 by a guy named Christopher Poole, It was originally intended to be an English-language counterpart to a Japanese image board called the Fotuba Channel, and its main focus was a place for people to gather and discuss manga and anime, which sounds pretty harmless and fun. I'd be a part of that. I like anime. Now, there's a whole rabbit hole into the world involving 4chan, and you are welcome to investigate it if you're curious. But the very, very short story is... 4chan was largely unregulated and soon became a haven for racist content and alt-right bullshit, helping give the world Gamergate, which was essentially an organized harassment campaign of several prominent women in the gaming industry. No need for Freud here. And a host of other festering boils that clustered along the ass of progress in the past few years. To pin a specific date to the birth of the uh, modern-day current conspiracy theory that is QAnon. Let's go to the fall of 2016. Now, we are in the high dudgeon of the Hillary Clinton Donald Trump presidential campaign. And there's bad news for the Trump campaign. The Access Hollywood tape has leaked, with the Republican candidate speaking in, let's say, a less than respectful manner regarding women. And for a brief moment, it looks like it might be all over for the famed short-fingered vulgarian from Spy Magazine's heyday. Not even Mike Pence will speak to him. However, earlier, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, had had his emails hacked by Russian hackers. They then fed these emails to Julian Assange at WikiLeaks, and they are sitting on these emails for just the right moment, Well, it arrives. The Access Hollywood tape is leaked. Trump associate Roger Stone springs into action and immediately contacts a guy named Jerome Corsi. Now, none of this stuff is up for dispute. This is all just factual. Jerome Corsi is in touch with Julian Assange. Stone's message for Assange through Corsi is simple. Dump the John Podesta emails. They want to, quote, balance the news cycle so it's not all about the Access Hollywood tape. And so, and this is easily proven, one hour after the Access Hollywood story breaks, WikiLeaks dumps the John Podesta emails. 
and the Access Hollywood story is knocked out of the headlines. Now, there wasn't anything extraordinarily shocking about the John Podesta emails, as far as sane people are concerned. But pro-Trump groups on Reddit and 4chan dissected them looking for dirt. Well, they didn't come up with much. But one person on 4chan focused on, now get ready for this, dinner plans. Dinner plans between John Podesta and his brother Tony. I know. And in these dinner plans, the two men discussed getting a, quote, cheese pizza, end quote. This particular poster at 4chan noted that pedophiles use the abbreviation CP to mean child pornography. So cheese pizza can only be code for child pornography. This really happened. According to posters on 4chan, the following terms were all code. Hot dog meant boy. Pizza meant girl. Cheese meant underaged girl. Pasta meant underaged boy. Ice cream meant male prostitute. Walnut meant a person of color. Sauce meant an orgy. So God help you if you were ever discussing a meal online. Again, all of this stuff really happened. The emails also reveal that John Podesta had some exchanges with a businessman and Democratic donor in Washington, D.C. named James Alifantos. This is all normal. Democratic operatives often speak with high-level Democratic donors. John Alifantos happened to, among other things, own a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant called Comet Ping Pong. Pizza restaurants serve cheese pizza. So this can mean only one thing. Turn this loose on the internet fever swamp and this is what you get. The basement of Comet Ping Pong is the nexus of an elaborate system of tunnels running underneath Washington, D.C. that connect it with other businesses where an elite cabal of anyone the particular reader disagrees with perform unholy acts of pedophilia and murder. Pretty harmless lunacy, you say, if you just keep it on the internet. Au contraire. On December 4th, Edgar Welch, a 28-year-old man from South Carolina, showed up at Comic Ping Pong with a couple guns and the goal of freeing all of Hillary's child slaves that were kept in the basement. Fun fact, there were no child slaves in the basement. In fact, the building didn't have a basement. Now you ask, was this enough to put this ridiculous story to rest? No! That's the beauty of conspiracy theories. It's like watching a soap opera, if you've ever gotten into a soap opera. The big reveal is always promised for the end of every week. But when the big reveal comes, it's never the reveal. It's always a bait and switch to another, bigger mystery that will be revealed next week. And that keeps you coming back. The fact that it was widely reported in the media that there were no child slaves in the non-existent basement of Comet Ping Pong proved only one thing. The media was clearly in on it. In October of 2017, someone began posting on 4chan under the title Q Clearance Patriot. Q Clearance is a real thing, and it is part of the Department of Energy. But within a month... 
Q Clearance Patriots postings were amplified on Twitter by Russian-based Twitter accounts. Now, just prior to this, President Trump had held a meeting with a group of top military commanders. It was an average and uneventful meeting, common between top military commanders and the president, who is, in fact, the commander-in-chief of the military. But a reporter asked him what the meeting was about, and instead of saying, nothing, just routine, he said, I don't know, maybe it's the calm before the storm. Why did he say that? Because Donald Trump is a man-child unfit for the office he held. That said, Q, Q, who immediately began posting about, quote, the storm, unquote. What was the storm? According to 4chan users, it was an imminent, widespread series of arrests of the cabal of child-eating pedophiles that were secretly running the country that Donald Trump was fighting. This story was then amplified not only by Russian-backed Twitter accounts, but also by moderators on 4chan, who found a way to profit financially from all of the attention and were interested in increasing it. This then spread to YouTube. By the early months of 2018, the conspiracy moved into the mainstream, with mentions from Sean Hannity and Roseanne Barr. Alex Jones claimed to be in personal contact with Q. Then a whole bunch of Q devotees began showing up at Trump rallies, starting in, let's all say it together, Florida. The Q cult has very heavy religious overtones and vibes, and it has spread globally like a religious movement. To be a part of it, you have to be down with the central tenet of the QAnon belief system, which is that Donald Trump was elected by God to fight a global network of Satan-worshipping, child-eating pedophiles who are in charge of everything. And the only way we know about this is because a guy named Q posts about it on a former anime message board. Because QAnon was started by right-wingers, remember, this traces back to the John Podesta email dump, to, which was released to distract from the Access Hollywood tape, the focus of the Satan-worshipping pedophile cannibal cult was always Democrats and their supporters in Hollywood and the media. Of course, QAnon is also a product of Hollywood. Donald Trump owes his popularity to a Hollywood TV show, The Apprentice, and QAnon's motto, where we go one, we go all, is stolen from a Hollywood movie. Ridley Scott's 1996 sailing movie, White Squall. The line is in the trailer, for Christ's sakes. Where we go one, we go all. One of the celebrities often targeted by QAnon supporters is Tom Hanks. It's obvious. Who is less likely to be a Satan-worshipping pedophile cannibal than Tom Hanks? This is a great trick provocateurs do. They take something obvious, and then they force you to argue it. They automatically win, not because they have a point, but because suddenly you are arguing. It's not that Tom Hanks isn't a Satan-worshipping child molester. It's the fact that they've put that argument on the menu, and that's their victory. Ben Shapiro does this for a living. He is the digital equivalent of the guy who shows up at the party and makes a big announcement that, actually, the Beatles are the worst rock group of all time. Or, actually, puppies are the least cute thing in the world. 
They've won the argument the minute you argue with them because they've taken something that's not an argument and made it an argument. If you don't believe me, just look up at the bright green sky. And, like a religion, QAnon is built on promises of apocalyptic events that never happen. And no, that doesn't disprove the theory. That just proves that the mystery is more complex than we were led to believe. Keep tuning in. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. The fact that Trump lost is proof that God made him president so he could do this thing he didn't do. Among the long list of QAnon's broken promises are The Storm The series of mass arrests of the satanic pedophile cabal that secretly rules the world which is made up of thousands of prominent Democratic politicians, media elite, and celebrities. These arrests would lead to a massive series of military tribunals, which would then lead to a global cultural cleansing and renaissance known as the Great Awakening. This was destined to take place on November 3rd, 2017. It didn't happen. It was then rescheduled for Joe Biden's inauguration, January 20th, 2021. It didn't happen. A major event involving the Department of Defense would take place on February 1st, 2018. It didn't happen. People targeted by President Trump would commit mass suicide on February 10th, 2018. It didn't happen. There would be a car bombing in London on February 16th, 2018. It didn't happen. The Trump military parade would never be forgotten. The parade was canceled. There would be a bombshell revelation about North Korea in May of 2018. It didn't happen. A smoking gun video of Hillary Clinton would emerge in March of 2018. It didn't happen. John McCain, when still alive, would resign from the Senate. Mark Zuckerberg would resign from Facebook. Jack Dorsey would resign from Twitter. The Pope would be arrested. Trump would be re-elected. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Even though Trump wasn't re-elected, it didn't matter. He would be inaugurated again on March 4th, 2021. Didn't happen. March 20th, 2021. Didn't happen. You get the point. But allow me, please... One last thing. All of this stuff is very, very old, racist, anti-Semitic bullshit dressed up in brand new bright red baseball hats. Many of QAnon's more high-profile devotees and boosters have a wink-wink, nudge-nudge support of anti-Semitic screeds like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and your granddad's old conspiracy theories involving the Rothschild family. They also believe that Hollywood elites are engaging in adrenochrome harvesting. Now, what is adrenochrome? According to the conspiracy, adrenochrome is adrenalized blood drawn from terrified children. That's what Hillary Clinton does to them in the basement of Comet Ping Pong. And then this blood is ingested, which allows Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks to live forever and have the power to jump over buildings. In reality, I know, boo, adrenochrome is real. It is a compound formed by the oxidation of adrenaline. And its main medical use is to promote the clotting of blood in open wounds. So what's with the eating of babies? 
Well, go on to Google and look up blood libel, dating back to around the year 1144. See, in early Christianity, there was the belief that, guess who? The Jews murdered babies and drank their blood for the purposes of dark arts that were performed in their mysterious religious ceremonies. All of this stuff is old, rehashed, anti-Semitic, superstitious bullshit fervently believed by morons who want to feel that they're in on something, that they're part of something. Well, you are. In September of 2020, Gregory Stanton of the Genocide Watch declared that QAnon was simply a Nazi cult rebranded for the 21st century. Congratulations. You're a part of something. And now, on with the show. What is amazing about your career, and you know, it's funny because your career, you as a filmmaker, you remind me, Bobcat Goldthwait reminds me of you in the sense that uh, his work as a filmmaker is that he's not tied to a genre like you your big movie that broke you through a- after ringer which was a short was squirm right. which came out after jaws when we need nature attacks movies and you thought worms um and it's i remember i remember the uh, i had the issue of famous monsters that that covered squirm yeah. Remember when it came out, and actually it was in the first issue of Fangoria. Oh, was it really? Yeah, they covered Squirm. Yeah, and and you could have just been a horror director, right, for the rest of your life, right. But you made this great documentary about stand-up comedy called "But Seriously." You worked uh, on um, uh, was it Sonny Liston? Was that the right? Yeah, yeah. You made a, a documentary about Sonny Liston. You were, you know, you, you that you're not tied to a genre that you're intellectually curious and that you just follow whatever interests you at the time. I, I think that that's admirable. Did you find that in a it, did that hurt you professionally because you weren't like oh, it oh he's a horror me. director? No, I wouldn't even say it hurt me financially big time. I mean, you know, if I said, but if I said all I want to do is movies. Uh, with special effects to say, uh, like Friday the 13th, watch this. We can put a hatch in a girl's forehead and they're going to put that in the trailer and we can, you know, kill. Well, what's the storyline? Eh, it's got a story. They're old, they're yeah. in the wood. Oh, well, well, who's the girl that gets the thing? Yeah, she has it coming. She's looking for a cat. She's stupid. Those movies, I could do them, grind them out like five, but I would have stayed in advertising. I would have made more money just making commercials. That's right. the way I look at those things. Yeah, it's not. And like, advertising is where the mo- is where the real money is. Right. The term for me is they don't need me to make Friday the Thirteenth. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's the way I look at it. And and uh, I have no interest in it. So if, if you say, well, you do it for money, okay, great. But I could make commercials and make more money. Right. Yeah. 
know? And I know a lot of guys that have made movies. They're commercial directors. They make a movie. And they could make another movie, but they go back to commercials because it's just, it's more money at the end of the day. It's more money it's and much money. less of a pain in the ass. And then on top of it, I could write commercials. I'm, I, I have a natural, if I had anything that was a natural gift, um, besides drawing, is, um, you know, writing yeah. advertising. Well, you came up with, uh, when the movie Tommy came out in 1975, right. you did that ad campaign, which was your, your senses will never be the same. Right. And Tom, that's all it is. Tommy, the move, Tommy, period, the movie. The, your senses yeah. will never be the same. And they yeah. use that across the board. Scott Muni. Yeah. I remember Tommy, the movie. Remember Scott Muni? I do. Yeah. And there's, a, well, yeah, but that's what advertising does. I met somebody whose dad was in advertising and they just said, yeah, my dad wrote uh, Choosing Mothers Choose Jiff. <laughs> just like it's just, it's, it's just four words, but it's ubiquitous. Everybody knows what yeah. it means. Yeah, no, that would come natural to me if I did that, and then I could shoot them. Like there were art guys that used to write and make and shoot their own commercials. Yeah, that's what I would have done as a yeah. If I just wanted to make money, so yeah. I I decided. So what can I do that I don't make money? And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was brilliant. No, I made money in spite of. I never tried to make a lot of money. That's what I'm saying. Right. You, you, well, tell, tell us, you know, people, you're not going to get out of this interview without talking about squirm. So let's talk a little bit about squirm and talk a little bit about remote control. And then I want to talk a little bit about Jennings line. Um, and then we'll, uh, uh, but so you're writing, you're working in film, you're in New York, it's the seventies. It's before jaws, but you get this idea for worms that get struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Yes and no. <laughs> maybe. It's a maybe. No, what happened was... F. Scott Fitzgerald had this idea about the corruption of wealth. You had this idea about worms that get struck by when I, when <laughs> ten When I was 10, my brother, who was uh, almost two years older than me, and he was really into science stuff. And he actually, uh, you know, I always thank him for the fact that, like, I had Einstein as the older brother. He's got me into uh, a lifetime. He became a, a doctor. You know, okay. um, but um, as far as science, I've always been fascinated with science. I always did great school in science. And he read in uh, Popular Mechanics that you can get the worms if you want to go fishing. You go fishing in a lake and you get um, night crawlers, whatever. Yeah, we would call it because I'm from you're from um, up, you're from New York, Long Island. In Long Island. I'm from Massachusetts. Right. We would go and it would be called night crawling. Right. We're going out to get worms at night. Right. So, but the thing is that he read that if you take uh, your Lionel train transformer, remember with the red and yeah. the black handle, and you hook up uh, two, the two poles to a metal rod, and you put the rod into muddy ground, you wet it all down, and then you zap them with the whistle because the whistle ups the amperage, you know, um, the worms will come out of the ground. And I went and we had one of these. Uh, overground pools you know that you take down in the winter so it had this big circle of mud and we had a light you know a a pool light so you know okay you ready and he zapped them and then i put on the pool light and it was like you know when you're 10 years old there's there was probably like 200 worms but in my mind there were 200 million Uh you know because they were jumping up and you know it's like freaked me out 
And so uh, that's the true story part. But when it came to uh, the early 70s, I'm not sure to this day that maybe LSD, having done acid, <laughs> it's like you take that experience and you add, it, add two parts acid to that experience and you come up with squirm. Because that's uh-huh. what I, did. I just amplified what was in my mind into a movie. Uh-huh. That's the only way I could put it. <laughs> right. No, it's it's just best. It, it couldn't be a it couldn't be a more clear example. But but what is amazing is that movie got made and that movie is great. And it, I remember it in the as part of the aftermath of Jaws, where right. if it was, uh, but but was it greenlit before? Jaws because it came yeah, out. As a matter of fact, you know, Jaws had nothing to do with it. As a matter that's, fact, a, that's what I mean. It was, I think of it as because then there was grizzly. No, you know, people say, well, you know, when you do anything and you know this, even in doing comedy, everybody has to group after the fact. They have to get yeah. labels and groups. So it was part of the nature run amok sure. cycle. Like right. these idiots, fighters that write this shit. Well, Nobody said, hey, let's do a nature run amok movie. You know, I certainly never heard that term until there was enough of them that you put together. But the the uh, impetus, the reason that that this happened is Edgar Lansbury and Chobaru were big, successful Broadway producers. And when they took a show called The Magic Show from Canada, um, this young producer of The Magic Show named Ivan Reitman, Right. Uh, came down uh, to New York because he's going to be a partner in the magic show in New York. He had done a movie with a guy named Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. In 70, it was called Shivers. Right. Ivan did. And they took it to Cannes and um, they made back their money, like say it was $300,000 in those days, which is $3 million today probably. Right. But um, they took it to Cannes and uh, they made back their money. So it was that business model that Edgar and Joe said, hey, we got all this money. We're coming in on Godspell and the magic show. Um, let's do that. Let's look for a script that we can make now, like right now. In re- So if it's May of this year, uh, we're going to, have it in can next march that was the template right okay. and then fill in the movie right it's and very so, much like in ed wood what's it called it yeah. opens in six weeks in tulsa <laughs> and and so so it's funny that it was almost like um you know when you work for television you have an ear date so you're working right. like you know, ba- and backwards engineering like february 3rd in the tv guide it's gonna be on at eight o'clock that's Basically, what they told me that this movie that you can do, but they read my script and they bought it immediately. And, uh, uh, that, that, but that's how it came about. It had nothing to do with, uh, with Jaws, it had everything to do with shivers. shivers. And that's exactly what they did, they brought it to Cannes. And it was the biggest hit, not in competition, but in the market, the the can market. Um, they got back all the, the whole investment there. So Sam Markoff came, swooped in and said, "Hey guys, you know, even though you made all these deals, I can 
I can kill all these deals. I want it for the world. And uh, so he took it, AIP took it for the world um, after that. And then it became MGM. And, right. You know. So that was my first. I said, oh, this is easy. Oh <laughs> 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 um, Yeah, but it, it happened to come out right. Yeah, because it, 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 it it was 76 it came out so it was yeah. being it was in production when jaws was coming I mean, you know all the jaws ripoffs came out in 77 78 cuz people started to have the idea in the fall of 75 the way it works like you know at a, a certain point a long time ago i said whatever whatever like the kids over here, whatever yeah. uh uh i did this movie just before dawn right now i'm shooting it they see oh it came out in 19 19- 80 or 81. So he drew from Texas chain. It's Texas chainsaw murders and it's Hill survives in the world. According to them. Right now in reality to this day, I haven't seen either move right. ever. Right. And yeah. The uh, Hills of eyes never had an interest to see, but chainsaw, I intentionally didn't see uh, for the reason that I could make a claim Lieberman claims you never saw. I don't believe yeah. it. Like no, I'm I, lying, I, right? Yeah. But I, so so I got to a point where my wife said, "Well, you can see it now. I mean, if you're curious, I have a print of it." I said, "Yeah, but then I can't like say specifically. I never. Now mm-hmm. I have to get an asterisk. Well, I didn't see it for like 27 years, and then I saw it's cleaner if I never see. It. And I went to a, a screening." At Universal and Toby Hooper. I never even met him. And then we went to a party afterwards, and t- it was great to finally, you know, meet each other, these horror guys. And he said to me, Is it true you never saw a chainsaw? I said, Absolutely. And I'm yeah. sure it's great, but I'm, I'm not going to see it. I had a show. I had a show on IFC called "Stand Against Evil." That was a horror comedy show, and people said it was a ripoff of Ash versus the Evil Dead, and which. It was not a, what it, the premise of the show was. What if instead of David Duchovny in the X Files, Gillian Anderson was partnered with my dad? That right. was the entire joke. Right. And right. that was this. And then the title. I was coming up with the title, and I found that "Stand Against Evil" was good. So I said, I literally changed the name of the character to fit the title. Like, right, right, <laughs> you know, right, and, right. but then I was like, well, people say it was a ripoff of Ash. And then I realized later, no, if I was ripping off Ash versus Evil Dead, I wouldn't have given it a title so fucking similar to Ash versus Evil Dead. I'm a better liar than that. <laughs> it's so much easier for people to like say, you, oh, I know where he got that idea. Yeah. because They can't conceive of getting a fucking original idea. If you could you'd have original ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know? if, so I was gonna, yeah, if I was going to be lying, I would lie and you would never know. <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> so anyway, what got us on that? Oh, yeah, Squirm. So yeah, Squirm. I did yeah. the Squirm. Uh, I actually, uh, the format of Squirm, is kind of like uh, my inspiration is one movie. See, in that time, and this is an interesting thing, up to like the seventies, we couldn't rip off anything because there's nothing to rip off. Right. So later generations ripped us off because there was something to rip off. Mm-hmm. But um, like the kids in the woods, you know, there's eight thousand of those movies. Well, I happened to make just before dawn when there wasn't 
I wasn't ripping, but I was ripping off Deliverance, which wasn't a horror movie. Right, 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 right. Exactly, but, exactly. You just take that premise and put a horror movie yeah, into it. So, but it wasn't, it wasn't um, like uh, you couldn't have it. You don't have a whole wealth like you have today with the 8,000 zombie movies and 8,000, yeah. you know, alien movies and all that and vampire movies. There wasn't a, you'd have to go back to the 30s or the 50s sci-fi movies to, to, do it now. I was very heavily influenced by the '50s sci-fi, and that, hey, worms, you want to do something? This is a, a cool thing. WPIX in New York used to show Squirm all the time <laughs> in black and white. Oh, it's like a '50s movie in black and white. They they made a mistake. No, they didn't. They always showed it one night. They showed it in black and white, and I'm watching this and going, "This is fucking great." It it like smooths over all the low budgetness of it, which sure. all fifties. Right. Well, that's why Night of the Living Dead was a black and white. Were right, and and you know, but the special effects and which ones are real worms and which yeah. ones are fake worms, and it was like, this is. I called up the station to find out how come it was in black and white, and in those days they showed a lot of black and white movies still uh, on TV, and the guy, the night guy, forgot to flip over. Mm-hmm. it's that simple and i would on my dvd when it first came out on dvd and i did a thing on mgm uh, you know the commentary i said take your tv and flip it all the way take all the color out and watch the movie that way and if you can like now with a smart tv if you can put it in subtitles like find japanese like because <laughs> i've seen it where don scardino is speaking a different language but not in black and white and it becomes like the movie I would always love. Right, you to totally play. understand. You know, there, somebody did this on YouTube, and it's speaking of Rod Serling. Someone did this on YouTube, and it's brilliant. They cut, they took Planet of the Apes, made it black and white, cut it down to twenty five minutes, and put Rod Serling narration at the beginning of the end because he did episodes that were similar enough in the premise, and he wrote the screenplays right. to that as well. And it's it, it's just, I mean, it it has always been. Like people say, Twilight Zone the movie was made in 1983. No, it was made in 1968. It was Planet of the Apes. That's Twilight Zone the movie. It's just a giant episode of the Twilight Zone. But this right. person actually cut it into a half an hour block, and it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. but talk about a, a, a movie that was also um, influenced by sci-fi in the 50s, but also ahead of its time. Remote Control is, uh, I think, is a really ahead of its time as a film. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that. The literal term ahead of its time, it was, um, it it was on its time to its detriment because I made it in 1987. That was the height of the video uh, explosion, revolution, right. uh, invasion, which is how the word came to me. But people saw it at that time and go, wait, you know, because it was very exaggerated. You know, right. and and I did it very stylized. But they said, ah, "Come on, nobody wears their hair like that." You know, or the fashions—that's too extreme. And too so, they took it too way too literally at the time. As the years went on, and there's no more video stores, and this whole generation grew up ha- spending half their life in video stores, like Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean? right. and and uh, this becomes this. So now the exaggeration 
works to its advantage because it's exemplary of the 80s, what was right. going on in the 80s. And they don't take it literally. That movie is exactly 11 and 7 sixteenths more famous now than it was then. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, have you ever heard I, of a slashback video? No. Is a it's an art installation that travels around, and it is an '80s video store, really specializing in horror movies. But it's you go into it, and it is like a time machine. It's like you're in a video store in the '80s. Wow! Yeah, it's really exciting. It's also it's strange because to be in something that is a recreation. I worked at a drive-in in high school that's still going. Uh, it's now it, at the time it was called the Milford Drive-in. What now it's called a, it was a, a you know a snack bar and oh, you know oh, okay. ticket you know whatever you did everything except projectionist, but I did carry the copper rods up. Um, you know uh, you do a little bit of everything, and it's still going. Uh, now it's called the Menden Twin in Menden, Massachusetts. You know that they don't have those those speaker things anymore. No, they, it's all your car. Yeah, but I, that, I I have one in the house. Um, <laughs> now how cool that is! Oh, yeah. you have the speaker thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you um, know what's cool is that there's a uh, I did it at least twice. It was someplace in uh, Pennsylvania, Mohonk Drive. Yes, they show all these. So they had they're doing they. I emailed the guy from that drive-in last night, and that's you know not what? a lie. Oh, you know what they're doing now? All five Planet of the Apes movies. Planet of the Apes. That's movies. why he emailed that's me. Harry Guerrero. Yeah, Harry. I emailed him Harry? this morning. I emailed with him this <laughs> that's morning. Funny. Yeah, yeah, Harry. So Harry had me out there uh, at least twice. Um, so when they showed Squirm, uh, somebody came over to me and said, um, "That's so funny. Like what a what a small world." Would you like to introduce? Uh, Squirm. I said, what, do you, what am I going to do? Go out in front of the screen and, and do like shtick? You know, I could do the dog you know, on, the, on the screen. Like, what do you mean introduce? He goes, no. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> anyway, so so I said, uh, he says, no, no, no. You can get on a microphone. Yeah. And we and plug we plug right into the FM of their speakers. Yeah. I went, hold it, hold it. You mean to say I could talk to them like DJs on the radio? Yeah. yeah. Done. I yeah. go to the thing and I and I introduce. I'm here and I'm talking to everybody in this yeah, it's great. Uh, uh, place that was packed. All these, you know, and they had the windows yeah. down so you could hear them inside, you know. Yeah. And I said, I never know what i'm gonna say like yeah you can see that now i never know until i say it and i said uh so uh out here in the drive-in i said uh you know and i talked about scrum is the first time i've ever seen in driving even though it played all through the south back in the day and everything i said so no more talking get out your condoms <laughs> i said get out your condoms and get ready for the show and i heard Big laughs coming from the cars. Yeah. And then my wife said, what did you say? (laughs) (laughs) But it was uh, was great to see the movie in in its home environment. I really, yeah, I was with the very briefly about the, the, the reason is when I 
go back to Massachusetts, I take my kids to that drive-in. When I go in that snack bar, it is like a time machine because it's very, very similar to what it was in 1981 and 82 when I worked there. And it is creepy and, and yeah. thrilling to be like, it's so like what it was. It's the same hot dogs as they get. <laughs> it's still school. there, yeah. Those school, yeah. It's like, well, it's the shape of the hot dog. <laughs> they wanted uh, Dr. Z. The, the Dr. Zayas thing that I do to introduce the apes movies, but I it's the weekend I'm taking my daughter to college, so I couldn't do it. But oh, otherwise, I would have, I, I would have gone. done it. I would have done it. And yeah. I would have gotten the car and gone there if you yeah. would have done that. Yeah, but I would have done you it. Do it. Even if you did it, how would I think it would have either gone and literally gone in front of the screen or would have filmed it or something. I, whatever he wanted to do, it was it was worth it to me. Uh, just to be able to see those on a drive-in screen again, which is really where they played uh, at the time. They were drive-in movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I love that. Uh, there's a drive-in out here that I go to a lot uh, here in Southern California. That's pretty great. Uh, and yeah. with COVID they're coming back, which is yeah, the I only, know. the only good thing that has come from the only good thing that has come from COVID. Um, so uh, well, there is one thing that came. I'm stealing this. <laughs> 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 beyond bat it looks like bat it tastes like bat but it's not a bat so you <laughs> totally stay that's norm, norm mcdonald in the height of everybody's going crazy yeah norm mcdonald he he actually was talking to rose dan i have i was watching some podcasts this summer and he said with a straight face you want to invest in, you know, because Beyond Meat was getting you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beyond that. <laughs> it looks like bat, tastes like bat, but it's not a bat. It's safe. I have been to Wuhan, and it is the filthiest fucking place I've ever been in my life. Wait, wait. It does so not surprise say, me. It does not surprise say, me. You have a certain glow about you. I didn't, I couldn't put my finger on <laughs> yeah. it. No, and now I don't want to put my finger on Yeah. It. No, Wuhan is Times Square in 1984, but the entire city now add chickens and you've got Wuhan. You know what I don't understand? It's like you got this virus, right? Now, if you say, well, there is a lab that does this exact same exact same thing, but they're in Mozambique or they're on the North Pole. You go, ah, what a coincidence. No, it's like the next block. Of where this <laughs> yeah. right? Nope, it didn't come from that. No yeah. way, no how. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. There's going to be 8,000 uh, kind of updated. Uh, you know, it's now too soon. I guarantee you. Um, well, there's been a lot of um, uh, movies with Dustin Hoffman, you know, all those yeah, outbreak and movies. Can, I, I don't see like everybody watched Pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic. But now I don't know how like Pandemic and Idiocracy are both documentaries now. I mean, they're, right. they're not even fiction anymore. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Um, before we go, I wanted to talk about Jennings Lang, who's a who's a really interesting character because there's a there's a podcast coming out. Um, I forget the name of the actress is playing Joan Bennett, and John Hamm is playing Walter Wanger. Um, and uh, Karina Longworth is producing the podcast. It's a it's a it's a uh, you know like a fiction. It's a story. It's a it's a narrative podcast story about these two people. And um, 
Joan Bennett, the uh, the very famous actress, was married to Walter Wanger. And then she had an affair with a guy named Jennings Lang. And then Walter Wanger shot Jennings Lang. In the Wanger. In the Wanger. Of all the weird places for yeah. a guy named Wanger to shoot you, shot him what in the garage. What are the odds? What are the odds? But it didn't actually, what people heard happened didn't happen. But right. um, he missed. <laughs> excuse me. But Jennings Lang, uh, Walter Wanger only did like a month at a at a uh, honor farm because he was rich and it was the fifties and he was a rich white guy. In the but 50s. he also he didn't hit the bullseye. So no, he, he didn't. He missed. He just hit his thigh. Yeah, but um, uh, you know, and because Walter Wanger was rich and white and it was the fifties, he didn't really have to go to jail for attempted murder. He did like a week at an honor farm. Well, Jennings was rich and white. Yeah, and and, and Jen, but Jennings didn't do anything illegal. He just stripped a guy's wife, right? Um, but it was a consensual situation. Yeah, so that's what, that's what I mean. He certainly paid the price. Um, but uh, listen, yeah, but uh, but Jennings Lang uh, went on to have a great career, and you worked with him a lot. Uh, yeah. That's a really interesting. Uh, yeah, he was story. like you know, there's certain guys that I'm so thankful that I got. Um, and they always say to me the same words. They go, they say, leave them when you're a quick study. I pick things up really quick. Uh-huh. You know why? Because I turn on, because I know I'm with somebody that knows a thousand times more than me about so many things I'm interested in. Right. Otherwise, I talk too much. It's like I, that switches off, you know. But when I'm with these people, it's like suck, I suck it in the first take. You know, uh-huh. that's what makes me a quick study. And Jennings, you know, to to say that certain movies, it's an entertainment. Did you ever hear that term? Sure. Okay, well, I never heard it back then. I'm thinking, well, isn't this the entertainment build business and every movie is, no, you do like, uh, you know, Schindler's List. That ain't an entertainment, even right. though it can gross $100 million. You do Jaws, it's an entertainment. Right. And, and they, these guys saw it was old school, and they were right about everything. I mean, it's like yeah, his, it all broken down. And the, Yeah, the way they approach films, they really, it is a business, and they really do see it as product. The last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, it's a it's a, a a very interesting story that you that close the book on that really caught me off guard. Um, where you talk about having a meeting with early seventies meeting with Buddy Mora, uh, who was uh, at Rollins Joffe and the old showbiz and management Jaffe, days. Yeah. yeah, who managed Woody Allen and and you know at the time was <laughs> early Woody Ooh, Allen when he was center, a, yeah he was a center. deity. Yeah, he was a deity um, before his fall from grace. And they had a meeting with you. And it's one of the things that you said you really kicked yourself about because they asked you what you wanted to do. And I, well, it's not even a kick in my side. I didn't even kick myself then. It's like uh, retroactive kicking. Can you sure. do that? Yeah. We've all done it. Yeah. Retroactive kicking. Then and then and then. So I, you know, <laughs> I didn't say, first of all, I really, uh, in my defense, I really didn't. I, I knew we had Woody Allen. I really didn't know these guys were the guys. Mm-hmm. Like every com, every comic, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, everybody said 
these are the managers. They were right. the armored Erdogans of comedy. They right. Knew. Well put. Yeah. They knew. And uh, I they were the pros that. from Dover. I didn't know that. So then you'd say, well, then you're really a schmuck if they thought that I was so clever and all that. But I, can I blame it on the bossa nova? Am I allowed? Because <laughs> what's the statute of limitations on the bossa nova? It's, pre- it's gone. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's why the name of the thing is regrets. It's a regret, you know? Yeah. I regret it. And just to find out um, what would happen, you know, but yeah. I. But you said, but, but the regret was that you want, you wish in retrospect that you had said to them, I'd really like that, to be. I'd really like to do. You said that you can't, you're clever like Woody Allen, but Woody, you know, he, he's the only one that could do clever for 90 minutes, um, you know, in a movie. Right. And they, they were right that I did. I was clever for for 20 minutes. In a right. Movie. So this is so your film, The Ringer, which is 20 minutes. Like, how do you how do you make that into a feature film? But what they left out was that Woody started doing stand up. He became Woody Allen doing stand up, not right. making movies. And that was the thing that I should have, should have, could have, would have, because uh-huh. I was around all the, you know, David yeah. Brenner and all, you know all these people when they were first. Richard Pryor. I saw, I saw um, Andy Kaufman when he was still a, a bartender at, uh, at the Improv. Uh, the Improv in in uh, Hell's Kitchen. Right. And Bud Friedman would get up, and this was a new. They shouldn't have called it improv because it's not improv. No. It's not what it was. Second City is improv. Yeah. They could have called that. Could have called it called the set this, list. <laughs> and called this First City or something. Yeah. But he would get up and make a speech and say, you're going to see people that are not, you're not at the Copa. That's why it's $5 to get in. You're not at the Copa Cabana. So don't, you know, he's talking to Bridget and Charlie, make right. a speech. Don't expect Martin and Lewis and you know people... Right. Some We're of working are, it out. They're working yeah. it out. In other words, he's setting you up that you can see people that are just not funny at all, right? It's like putting that in your head, which nobody thought that way. Andy Kaufman, because I talked to him about it that night. This guy was so sharp. He heard this every night. He gets up there. That's where he came up with that foreign man, mm-hmm. nervous, shitty, the worst act in history to make to play on the audience what they've already been told to make them so uncomfortable. Right, right. Like to him, uh, him, anxiety and hilarity were interchangeable. And he says, how many here are from uh, Long Island? And people go, you know, what is it? All right. yeah. And he goes, you know what they say, LOL on the LIE. Now, talk about reference. That was Herb Oscar Anderson on morning radio on FM would say, well, forget about it. It's LOL, lots of luck on the LIE. Right? <laughs> and he's waiting for a laugh. And people are like literally squirming. And then here's my meter. I'm like everybody else, right? And I'm here. I, this is exactly what happened. I'm on zero. And somewhere in a split second, I went, this is the funniest guy I ever. Right. Because I see what he's doing. Right. And I start laughing and I was the only one laughing. Yeah. My wife's like, you know, like you make it. No, this is the funniest motherfucker. Yeah. I ever he's saw. doing he's doing what Goldthwait also did when he started that people didn't understand. He's doing he, comedy about comedy. Exactly. And I'm and so I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, I said, I saw what you did. No, you know, he did the Mighty Mouse thing. Yeah. And he would take his time. Nobody ever saw this. Yeah. It's like 
what's a polished act? This would be the most unpolished act ever, only it was unbelievably polished. Right. He took us on a class trip at one o'clock in the morning out into Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Mr. Hobo. We're all having our drinks. Can you imagine doing that today? Yeah. <laughs> no, I so can't. We go like boys and girls, double file, and we all walked out into the streets back when Hell's Kitchen was really Hell's Kitchen. Right. The guy was a genius. Yeah. So I, that's another reason why I didn't do it. Because the guys that I loved, I never thought, you know, I'm not in their league. You know what sure, I'm saying? Sure. Like, if you really appreciate what they're doing, it was too intimidating me to be... Not to try to be them, but just to go in there and do what they were doing. That's right. how much I, I had them. In. Well, your your book is called Day of the Living Me. It, it's great. It's such a fun, fast, easy read. And we, you know, we barely touched on, we barely scratched the surface. There's great stuff about, you know, the sort of John Lennon, George Burns, Tippy Hedren, uh, John Waters. There's, you know, you've you've one of those people that is has had a Forrest Gumpian journey through uh, show business in the latter half of the 20th century, first part of the 21st century. Um, it's it's a, a super great read, and uh, I really recommend it. That a word? Uh, what is it? Zeligian? Yeah, Zeligian. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, we, we'll make it work. <laughs> yeah. We know we don't reference Woody Allen anymore. It's it's a difficult time, yeah. uh, but uh, and anyway, uh, the the uh, it's called Day of the Living Me by Jeff Lieberman. Jeff, thanks for coming by. Just go to jefflibermandirector.com. And the reason you should do that instead of Amazon is because if you do it from jefflibermandirector.com, L I E B L R M A N, I will uh, sign them. Where and Amazon, Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more money. He doesn't need, well, he's making money. I have to buy the books. But um, uh, that's so Jeff Lieberman Director is one word. Now, back in the 80s, if I said to you, Jeff Lieberman, director, is one word. You see, you're out of your mind. And we accept that today. Yes. It's a new, how could that be one word? It's it all, just, it's a, it's, as my friend said yesterday, Edison, all I can tell you is that everything will always be very different. Other podcasts reach for the sky. David Goldbaum. This has been the Dana Gould Hour, brought to you by the Internet. Music by Andy Paley, with Jake Posner behind the board. Produced by Jeff Fox. Graphic design and web production by Spencer Hunt and Segan Friend. Sound editing and post-production by Jalinda Palmer and Joe Napolitano. Hey, if you like the show, why don't you drop us a line at show at danagould.com. Tom Kenny speaking. I'm a singer, I'm a singer, I love to sing, and DJ, boom, peace out, peace out.